following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. The Matrix Reloaded. The Matrix Revolutions. The Matrix Resurrections. The Animatrix. Inglorious Bastards. Interstellar. Terminator 2. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Bound. Assassins. The Purge. And The Purge Anarchy. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie and then try to determine which one is cooler. Robots, dinosaurs, or a virtual reality AI construct that we're all born into so that we can provide power to the robots that have conquered us. Uh, I'm your host, Louis Chi, and with me as always is my co-host, a returning co-host, the current uh, self-proclaimed heavyweight champ of RVD co-hosts, Conrado Falco. Welcome, Conrado. Hey, I am here. I am ready. I am coming for who has the most appearances so far? Ryan? Is it Ryan or is it Jason? It's um, probably Ryan on a technicality. I think we we talked about this last yeah. time that like because he's done so many episodes of the Marvel TV shows, he has the most appearances. Uh, but most movies, I think, is either you or Jason Carubia. Yeah, but we've come up with an, with this concept that we're going to talk about in a second where I am going to rack up a lot of appearances. Um, so I'm coming for you, Ryan. Yeah, uh, this was a smart move on your part, Conrado, because what? Uh, tell, tell the listeners what it is we're going to be covering today and in the next four weeks of Robots vs. Dinosaurs. We're talking about The Matrix and... The other Matrix movies, Reloaded, Revolution, Resurrections. Are there any more Matrix movies? We'll find out. The Animatrix is, I guess, it's a series of shorts. So I don't know if it's a, a movie in its own. But Okay, I'll... Lou, this is how I'm going to do it. We're going to do an episode on each short from the Animatrix. And that way I'm going to get to Ryan and I'm going to surpass him finally. Brilliant. <laughs> Uh, well, your your goal may be to have the most guest appearances on this show, but my goal is for uh, for us to have a really in-depth discussion on one of my favorite movies, The Matrix. Um, so today we're going to be kicking off our Matrix discussions and with the first, the original, um, the 1999 The Matrix by the Wachowskis. Um, it's bo- it's bo- both written and directed by the Wachowskis. Uh, and we were, Conrado, we were kind of talking about this earlier, and I just think this is a very interesting hot take that you have. This is, Mm -hmm. this is easily my favorite of the Matrix movies. Um, it's also just, it's in my, easily in my top five movies of all time. Uh, Mm -hmm. and probably one of the movies that I've seen more than anything else. Um, you were telling me that out of the Matrix movies, this one actually might be your least favorite. That is something, that's a realization that I came to last night when I was watching it again. And just, uh, and we'll get more into all my thoughts about The Matrix. Uh, I like all of the movies, but watching it again last night, I came to the realization, oh, this is a great movie, but I think I like all the other movies, the sequels, better just because of my particular takes about what they're trying to do and the ideas that come with them that I think are... I think more interesting. So I think The Matrix is a great table setting for what happens next. 
and I think it's a great movie. But when I look at how I feel about each of the movies, I feel like I would rewatch probably any of the sequels before I would rewatch the first one. So that was an interesting realization that I had last night. That's interesting. That this this movie came out when I was I think in high school, and it was just it, it's it's one of the it's one of those pivotal movies that made me start paying attention to movies in mm-hmm. general and start realizing like movies can be um movies can be art movies can be something that makes you think and and feel like and not just entertainment um mm-hmm. and it very much this movie very much is entertainment and all of those things but it's it's more than that yeah um, this to me i i'm younger than you so i was uh i was too young to watch the matrix when it came out um, because you know it's like R-rated and pretty violent, so my parents were never mm-hmm. gonna go take me see it. I was probably like seven or eight at the time. Um, but this was a pivotal of those classic like older cousin movies. You know, like when your older cousin comes around and and shows you a cool movie, like hey, you gotta check this out. That was the Matrix for me. Like a couple of years after it came out, when it was on DVD, my cousin was like. Okay, so you like like Harry Potter and all that bullshit, but let me show you a cool movie. And then he put like The Matrix, and I was like, "Whoa, what is this?" You know. So your cousin was like your Morpheus, who was yeah, opening exactly. your eyes to <laughs> this bigger world. Welcome to the desert of the real, and he put on The Matrix. <laughs> uh, so this this movie is huge. There's been tons of digital ink spilled over it, and um, I, you know, a lot of tons of podcasts have covered it. I don't know what's new or original that we could say about it. Um, we're certainly not going to try to break it down scene by scene or anything and cover absolutely everything comprehensively. We're going we're gonna to do our best. Um, and I always have three big questions every time we watch something uh, that I, I like to ask in a section called Lose Big Three. Uh, hit the music. Do, 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 lose Big Three with you and me. We're going to have fun with fucking Lose Big Three. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> that's great all right so lose big three number one i think this is, this is the this is the best uh way to kick off our discussion about this movie conrado if mm-hmm. you were presented with the choice of the red pill or the blue pill which one would you take and why this is a great question i mean it's just it, this is like one of the biggest questions of the whole movie right and i think mm-hmm. um in as far as there is i think uh a through line for what this first matrix is trying to say, I think is the idea of why is it worth it to take the red pill? You know, why? Because the whole thing with Cypher who, I don't know, do do we need to do like a, a plot description summary or anything? People know the matrix, right? Can we just jump in and talk about what happens in the movie? Yeah. I'm going to operate under the assumption that if you're listening to this, you've seen the movie, um, at least once, uh, or you know what the plot is. I don't think anybody's listening to this to learn what is the matrix, but if you want to like, just sort of set up the, 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 yeah, I'll give a little concept. So like the concept of the matrix, and I think it's good to talk about with this, uh, question is that, you know, Neo, who in The Matrix is known as Thomas Anderson, is is like this kind of like corporate stooge guy who has a shitty job in a shitty office building that does shitty things. And but at night he's kind of like a hacker on computers and he has like this other life as a as a cool hacker dude in the late 90s, right? And he is very discontent with his life. There's something wrong with the world, but he doesn't know what it is. And then 
he discovers because uh, Morpheus and Trinity, all these people, all these other hackers really uh, find him and tell him, they awaken him to the reality that the matrix, the world where he lives in is actually the matrix, which is a construct created by machines to keep humans down and control us and use us as batteries. And and actually it's not the year 1999, it's the year 2199 or close to it. And uh, the world is ravaged and machines have taken over and the resistance is like these humans led by Morpheus who uh, are trying to like stage a resistance against the machines basically. Um, so that's a, a quick summary. And uh, the idea is that when Morpheus presents it to Neo is that he gives him two pills when he's going to tell him the reality of the world. He says, if you take the blue pill, you can take it. You'll forget that we ever contacted you and you can go on with your life as it is. But if you take the red pill and you want to know what actually is real, then you will be awakened to the reality and there's no going back. Um, mm. Because once you know what actually is real, you can't just go on to thinking that life is uh, as it was, and, and that rea- the fake reality where you're living is the actual reality. What is yeah, interesting? Yeah, you can't you can't get plugged back into the matrix once you're pulled out. Or can you, right? Because then we learn that there is a member of the crew of Morpheus' crew, Cipher, played by the great Joe Pantoliano, one of my favorite actors, who um, mm. who has basically betrays them and strikes a deal with the computers and with the robots to be like. Um, with the machines, rather, it's what they call them, to, he says, I want to take the blue pill and, and go back. You know, I have been awakened and this reality sucks. The Matrix is much better. Over there, we only eat goop, which tastes horrible. In the Matrix, you can eat steak. And I want that. So I'm going to deliver you more fuse. And in, in return, you're going to plug me back into the Matrix and I'm going to forget about everything. And I'm going to go back to the way things are. And that's the thing that the movie, the big question of the movie for me has always been, why wouldn't you do that? You know, what is the merit mm. of knowing the truth? Well, because it's much more comfortable to go back in the matrix, take the blue pill and forget anything ever happened. Mm. And just continue with it. So what is the value of seeing things as they are versus how it's comfortable to see them? Is it, um, is it, fr- is it like a moral thing for you where like going back in doesn't bother you because you don't care that the machines quote unquote won um, you, like you don't need for humanity to quote unquote win or regain our, our sovereignty. Uh, or is it just that like that, that is not even a real possibility. Like it's so bleak and hopeless that the best option that any of us has is to be plugged into this fantasy world where we have, you know, yeah. the illusion of, of, of a life. Exactly. It's like, you know. I don't want to get like too bleak about our real life situation, but like if we look at the world right now, we know that there's like, uh, you know, think of like global warming and climate change and all that stuff. You know, we know that we're going in a dark path, that things are getting worse, that there's this thing, global warming, that is going to come for us and human natural disaster is going to come. But so many people, it's so hard to take in that reality to realize what needs to happen, that it's much more comfortable to pretend kind of like it's not going on or to think someone Mm. else will take care of it and I'll just live my life comfortable as it is you know I think that's kind of how I see the matrix and and the cypher character this is such a horrible situation listen if Morpheus and his people go and fix this then good for them but I would rather just be comfortable here living in in oblivion not really having to deal with the with what is really going on because it's more comfortable okay 
I could see that. Like it, but it's yeah, it's. Uh, and the other version is so uncomfortable. It's so hard to deal with those big things, you know. Like I have a lot of anxiety about like what's going to happen in the world a lot of the time, and I don't know how to deal with it. Um, you know, so I spend a lot of time in therapy figuring that out. But also, but I understand why Cipher would make that choice. So I find it really uh, emotional and powerful for the movie to be saying what is the the strength of uh, taking the red pill and seeing what is actually happening. And we can talk about it more when we go to the other movies, how that idea evolves. Well, when you when you take the red pill, what I love about um, what this movie communicates is that when you get uh, pulled into the true world and you, and you know what's really going on and everything changes for you. For if you're if you're somebody like Thomas Anderson, where you're living this, you know, nine to five hamster wheel kind of existence and you're and it's and it's making you depressed anyway um mm -hmm. opening your eyes to the reality of living on a you know submarine hovercraft with uh with just you know paste protein paste for food and uh goodwill scraps for like clothes and everything mm -hmm. and just like no warmth or entertainment and like no nothing no brightness, whatever, like literally no sunlight. Um, like the yeah. fact that taking the red pill, opening your eyes to the truth, like becoming a warrior against the the oppressive ones in charge, the machines that are running everything, means that you're going to lose even more. You're going to lose all comforts. You're not going to have cool stuff. Um, you're not going to have like a cool chair in your cool hovercraft that you're flying around and it's all just like scrapped together bits of rusted metal and your clothes are threadbare and like they don't have anything is when it, like on the on the nebuchadnezzar um and so yeah i can definitely see why cypher makes the blue the choice to take the blue pill mm -hmm. um but i guess my, the question what? is like do yeah. you hold it you you don't hold it against him morally that he like he kills his 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 crew oh. well that is to, one hundred percent, I take. He's, you know, he's a villain. He, like he, that's morally reprehensible. That he, I mean, it's one thing to want to take the blue pill because you realize this is it's easier that way. The other is to like betray all of your your peers and you you know the people, um, who who kind of like awake awoke you and 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 you know, uh, led you to the to the reality. Um, so in that sense. Your original question was what pill I would take, right? And so right, the, right, right. the thing that I am figuring out, struggling with, is that I think it's easier to take the blue pill, and I can see myself taking the blue pill, but what, why would I take the red pill is my question, right? And I think it is because I think the movie... This was a very common thing, I think, in the late 90s when the movie was made, and I think it's come back in style, kind of, this idea that something is wrong with the world, right? This reminds me also of like a movie that came out the same year, like um, Fight Club, which is also kind of about mm. like this dude in this kind of like end of the millennium America, you know, before 9-11, where it seemed like everything had come to to peace in the world and and prosperity. And, there, and that was it, you know, it was the end of history, as they say. Um, but there was still something wrong that they didn't, something was wrong with the world and you don't know why. I always come back to that. That's something that Morpheus says to Neo. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what the red pill gives you is that 
it shows you that there is something wrong with the world, that it's not just in your head, that you're not just crazy and, and that you're not um, weird or wrong for feeling like it's like there's something off about your life, that there's actually a, an answer to it. And then there's an alternative to it, right? Which I think it's also a big thing for me, especially in con the context of the later movies. There's a um, British documentarian called Adam Curtis who makes very interesting uh, essay documentaries. And one of the concepts that he came with is hypernormalization, which is the feeling that something is wrong, but you can't think of an alternative. And he uses it to think of mm. like the way that capitalism has kind of like ingrained itself in our lives. And we like, there's this thing of like, um, this idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism, you know, in mm -hmm. like these kind of like dystopian movies that we can figure out, yeah, dystopian worlds, but it's hard to imagine a world where we don't work in that system. And I think what the red pill has given you is the idea of like, yes, the world is kind of bleak, but but you were right. There is an alternative to it. It doesn't have to be kind of this way. And and throughout the other movies, I think it also goes further into showing what can be accomplished in this alternative world. But so when you take the blue pill, do you think that you go back to, you forget that you had it confirmed for you that something's wrong, but do you think you go back to just having that uneasy, vague sense of something's wrong? I think so. I think so. I, I don't want to get too far into it, but in the, in the latest Matrix movie and Resurrections, the way that the blue pill is used there makes me feel like, yes, like there's for the people, something that the movie sets up as well. This movie, the Matrix original 1999 is the idea that some people are ready to wake up and some people are not. Some people mm -hmm. are more uh, comfortable in the matrix than others right neo is clearly uncomfortable in the matrix and we get the sense that everyone who's been woken up by morpheus is also uncomfortable in the matrix and i think those people will always have that feeling that something's wrong no matter if they take the blue pill or not um yeah so the blue pill doesn't take that anxiety away from you I think mean, maybe it does in the latest, not to get too much into resurrections, but they do use the pill as a kind of like a pill that he keeps taking. So I think it could be that, you know, you can take it as a thing that keeps the anxiety away, but definitely in this movie, that's not been set up yet. Um, yeah. It's not, a, it's not a, it, it's not really a full, like true reset. It's just taking, it's just erasing basically the last like couple of days or whatever, when Morpheus and all his friends came in and pulled a, a, yeah. a, a robo prawn out of your belly button. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I, I've thought about this a lot uh, and uh, I would definitely take the red pill, but I think that I would want to be like plugged in on, in one of those chairs as, as often as possible. I would just, I, anytime <laughs> right. I like it's mealtime, I'd be like, all right, give me the protein crap, but like plug me in while I'm eating so I can pretend <laughs> it's ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> right. That, yeah. Yeah. Like, I um, think I would become addicted to to the chair. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I would I would constantly want to be like doing fight simulations like their video games, yeah. doing like e eating at the best restaurants whenever, you know, I'm eating uh, protein goop. Um, and I would probably become I would definitely without a doubt not be satisfied taking the blue pill, but I would take the red pill and then, 
yeah, just try to be jacked all the time. Yeah, I mean, that's another great thing about the concept of the movie. And we can talk about this more. But I think the biggest triumph of the movie is creating this world and this idea. Some ideas... Mm -hmm. A lot of the ideas in the movie are not new, right? Like the idea of a future dystopia where robots take over has been done before in The Matrix. Um, you know, like Terminator is about that, you know, um, mm. basically. And then the idea that you wake up from a, from a dream world into the real world. This has all been done, but the way they put it together, the Wachowskis in this movie, the specifics are so good. What you're saying, such a great metaphor because it feels like our lives as well. Like we... You know, we are movie guys, so we love to watch movies and escape from, like, the reality of our lives. And, and you know, like what you were saying, just jack me into the thing as much as possible. Just, I want to watch movies as much as possible, you know, whenever yeah. I have a free time. I just want to, like, or play video games or whatever it is. There is a necessity to have that kind of escape and that fantasy. Man, man, that's... Yeah, this this movie this is one of the greatest things about this movie is how it makes you very <laughs> self-reflective. Um it prevents it presents a lot of pop philosophy. Um but it but uh, but they but the Wachowskis know what they're talking about and they're not just gl like them writing that kind of stuff into the all of the Plato allegories and everything into the script. Mm -hmm. It's not glib in any way. It all really no. serves a purpose and builds this whole this whole world and and like the people living in it and how they view it. And it really makes you think about it in 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 all of its multifaceted, multi-layered ways. Um, yeah. Man. All right. So my okay. Lose big three. Number two. Uh, speaking of like red pill versus blue pill, and I I do I I do really wonder if you can truly be plugged back into the matrix, like mm -hmm. um like like whether or not Cipher, if the machines would have honored his the deal if he had actually survived because mm -hmm. i question. couldn't really tell if like maybe they were just sort of duping him to get what they wanted and then they would have discarded him anyway yeah. um but the big the big i guess like logistical question i have is when he's ha talking to them when he's making that deal with the, with the machines um cypher of course you know betrays the whole entire crew and sells them out because morpheus as a ship's captain has keys to the computer network that of Zion. He's able to access the mainframe of Zion, basically. Um, mm. And so, if the if the machines get get Morpheus, they get those codes. They get access to Zion. They get more batteries. Basically, they increase their power right. output. Uh, and so, Cypher not only sells that, them but out. they get rid of the humans who are fighting against him, right? Because it's that too. Anybody who's causing a problem in the Matrix, yeah, yeah. Um, so when he's at that restaurant, when he's making that deal, how is he doing that? He, you have to be plugged in yeah. in order to be in the Matrix. Somebody has to be like the operator and they have to give you a signal to go in and out and they have to physically unplug you to get you back. So how, how I don't like, was he able to plug himself into the chair? Is that something you can do? Because the movie seems to say otherwise. Yeah, well, we, there is that moment where we see him um, on the computer in the middle of the night and Neo startles him where he yes. is, you know, which is our first indication that he's, it, I feel, I feel like that scene comes right before the dinner scene. He it is, is. It's immediately it's, before. It's immediately before. And then we see him there with the, with the, uh, talking with the computer. So that's a good question. It's like a, one of those kind of um, 
YouTube plot holes, you know, that I'm sure like a cinema sense or whoever has like talked about. But um, mm. I guess you could see it as a either it's not actually happening and it is a conversation that he's having through code in the computer. And this is just a, you know, a literalization, a visualization of what that conversation is with the computers. Um, so he's not actually plugged in. We're just seeing it as a um, as a presentation of it. I don't know if, if I they, buy that. If they were just sitting and talking, I might buy that. But he, he, they show him enjoying bites of the steak. And I think that's what's supposed to sell us on his motivation in the scene. So I, I think yeah. it is literally happening in the Matrix program. Yeah. The way that I would explain it is that the machines probably have shown him a way to do it without needing a... Uh, what do you call it? Without in the tank. Uh, yeah, an uh, operator. What's the name that they use for it? An operator. operator. That's right. So they, they're showing him a way to do it. And I assume that that's how he would go back into the matrix with the machines after he completes the plan. Right? Yeah. Because um, essentially, so essentially them them. It's, like, it's like the matrix itself. If you think of it as like a like an MMO, like a, like a game, a video game, mm-hmm. um, that you, if you live in Australia... There's an Australian server that you would connect to to access it, but then if you lived across, like in you know Boston, you would use a server, a local server there to access it, and it's the same game, it's the same system that you're accessing, mm-hmm. but through a different access point, and yeah, I guess I guess the machines would have some way to, but if they yeah, but if they see. This is the problem I'm having, like unpacking that <laughs> is if they if they can get through the ports in the Nebuchadnezzar ship in the hovercraft that go into the back of the skulls, that means that they've already hacked that system. That means they already have access to anybody that plugs into it. Morpheus, Neo, anybody. Um, yeah. 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 I guess that I guess I I will do some research and see if there is like a Cinema Sins um, thought. <laughs> There's prob- there probably is, but I, I don't. I, I mean, can't I don't be know the first person to question this. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Not in this world. Not in this internet. Yeah, but do you, do you think the do you think the machines would have honored their um, their side of it? Do you think they do you think they uh, even have a way to plug somebody back in, or do you think it's physically yeah. impossible? I think they have a way to do it for sure. They're doing. I think whatever way they would plug him in at the end is what they're doing in that stake scene. Probably is is okay. how I would justify it. And whether or not they would honor their end of the bargain is an open question. I always feel in some of these movies that um, uh, yeah, when when the villain has a plan like that, I always question it and wonder. Mm, I don't know if they would have honored it. The case in point, you know, in Inglorious Bastards, uh, spoilers for the movie towards the end. I don't know if you remember when Hans Landa strikes a deal with uh, with the Americans and with the Allies that they're going to let him free. And mm-hmm. at the end, I, I, at that part, I always thought like, mm, I don't know if you are like taking the precautions that necessary for that. How do you know they're going to honor it? And then, of Especially course, at for the that end, character, how cautious he is. Yeah. Yeah. But at the end, of course, what happens is Brad Pitt, you know, brands him on, on the forehead. And it's part of the movie that, you know, he shouldn't have like been so confident that they were going to uphold their end of the bargain um and in that movie i justify it because the character i think all in all is a it's kind of like a german and a nazi and and there's like a kind of like a respect of order and he's Mm -hmm. expecting that the americans will have that respect of like order and chain of command that he has in his army that they end up not having okay okay 
Fair enough. Um, okay. I, I think, yeah, I, I think that the, I think that they don't care, the machines don't care one way or another about, no. you know, one can, human mind and what it wants and what it desires. Especially Cypher. I mean, so I think it's, I can easily picture it going both ways. I can picture the, easily picture the machines being like, it's just one guy. I don't care. Like, let's just it do it. It doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't cost yeah. us anything. And I could see them like saying the opposite. Like, it's just one guy. Let's just like fucking kill him after he's done the thing for us, you know? An argument could also be made. And I think this is like me including things I know from later movies. But an argument could be made that um, one of these machines might figure out, well, if we if we give this guy what he wants, his brain activity output will increase and we'll get even more energy out of him as a battery. So, yeah, let's definitely yeah. make him someone important and rich and famous. That's uh yeah, that's an interesting idea. I don't know if the machines would have had that information yet, the way that it right. develops in the other movies. But yeah, but, yeah during, I can during see the dial-up days, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um okay. And so this next question, lose big 3 number 3. This definitely this is a bit of a cheat because it definitely does build on things that we find out in later movies. Um but I but I just I want to be able to talk about like yeah. the whole entire lore of the Matrix. Okay, I think and, I might know what this question is, and I'm excited. Let, tell me what it is, and I'll tell you okay. if it is what I was thinking of. So if this has happened multiple times, which Agent Smith does acknowledge in this in this movie, um, that that is something that's happened. The Matrix has been rebuilt and redesigned multiple times. Uh, but mm-hmm. we find out later on, like, not only that, but huge spoiler um neo has existed multiple times not neo himself not thomas anderson but the one one. yeah the one like person that escapes the matrix and frees everybody and and it and has their hero story so that you know again it keeps the system running um and that's the architect's grand design so if that has happened multiple times how come when the agents arrest neo like arrest or say when they bring in thomas anderson Mm -hmm. um and they're Morpheus and Trinity are talking about how, you know, they're, yeah, they arrested you, but they let you go because they don't realize who you yeah. are and what you are. If they did, they would have killed you. Mm-hmm. Um, why not? If the, if the agents know that this has happened multiple times and that this specific scenario with somebody escaping and becoming the one keeps happening, why aren't they taking him seriously? So this is a great question. We are going to talk so much, I am sure, about this whole idea of the returning one when we do the next movie, Reloaded, because I have a Mm. lot, a lot of thoughts about it. And it's one of the best things I love the most about the whole Matrix is that idea. However, I think the answer to this is pretty simple. I don't think the agents know as much as as you think they know. I think the agents know about the uh, kind of failed couple versions of the Matrix from the beginning. The architect, I think, has told the agents... Yes, we did a matrix at the beginning that was perfect and beautiful and the humans rejected it. That's why it's this way. That's why you have to be there. That's why you're an agent that you have to have this job. But they don't know that this matrix, just like Neo and everyone else, they don't know yet that this version of the matrix has been rebooted multiple times. So the so architect think, like oracled the matrix, the uh, the yeah, agents, the agents, exactly, exactly. And I thought yeah. this is what I thought you were going to ask about the oracle, which we can talk about as well. But mm-hmm. yes, the architect, I think, or maybe it's not the architect himself, but someone who works for the architect is in in 
communication with the agents and the programs of the matrix, just like the Oracle is in communication with the people who are being freed. And it's all part of the design. So I think the agents have not been told how important Neo is because the machines want the one to exist. It's part of the whole plan. So why don't they kill them? Why don't they awaken him? Because they want him to get to the architect. That is the whole plan of the way that they keep the matrix running. The big question for me is Mm -hmm. the whole question of the whole trilogy is why is this time different? What happens in, in what we're seeing that makes this version of the one and this version of the matrix not go the way that all the others have. Um, and I think, do you, I don't know if you have any ideas, but I think for me, it goes all goes to the Oracle. I think the Oracle does something different this time around than the other times is the impression that I get. That's what I was going to say. I, yeah. It, when, when you were asking that question, that was my first answer that came to my mind was this time the Oracle lied. This time the Oracle lied in order to steer the events the way that she wanted them to play out. But what is the the lie being that she tells Neo that he's not the one? She doesn't actually tell him that. She kind of lets him say that out loud and doesn't Mm -hmm. deny it. Um, But she I was paying really close attention to does she say explicitly you're not the one? And she she doesn't. She says, like, you're gifted. Uh, I I wrote down a bunch of what she said. Yeah, I'm sorry Um, to give you bad news. And she says, mm -hmm. like, and she tells him explicitly what she does tell him is that he's going to have to make a choice uh, to save Morpheus' life or his own life. Yeah. And she says, you're, yeah, you're gifted, um, but you look like you're waiting for something. Maybe Mm -hmm. in your, she says, in your next life, maybe. Which is mm-hmm. interesting that she tells them like maybe you know maybe next next time you get recycled and come back around and you'll this be the one. Lou this is incredible because when we get to resurrections that happens yep if what what resurrections brings to the table is that idea coming to full fruition that this incarnation of Neo is not really the one that's going to go all the way to the end it's going to be the next one which is the one that comes in resurrections yeah that's true. That's true. And he's literally reincarnated in that yeah. and literally rebuilt. Yeah. Cloned, I guess, arguably. Um, well, we'll have we'll have that argument. We'll have that debate of whether he's cloned or whatever. Uh, we'll, get, <laughs> we'll get to that movie. Um, but yeah, I do think it all it all comes down to the Oracle. So do you think what. So if the, the Oracle was was the the pivot that changed everything and made this time different. But why? Why did she choose mm-hmm. to do that? We can talk about this also more in the sequels, because in the sequels, it becomes more clear that the Oracle is also part of the Matrix design, right? Yes. Um, she's, She's been created by the computers. She's basically the program that's been designed to guide the one to the end. Mm-hmm. However, also in the sequels, and already in this one, we get a glimpse that programs can go rogue and can start to do whatever they want because they are like the machines, they are AI. And so the machines can only have so much control over them. And programs can start doing things that they are not supposed to do if they so choose to, just like humans can. So what the Oracle is doing after many incarnations is she's starting to see a pattern and she's starting to decide to figure out things a little differently, right? It seems like the Oracle has really grown fond of these humans who are trying to bring down the machines and their mission um, because she's programmed to side with the machines. 
mm-hmm. but in a way, but she's starting to get fun of the humans and she's starting to see, to figure, and I guess she's just trying to, trying things out. I, I, I'm, I wonder if in a couple other incarnations of the Matrix before this one, she's trying other things out, right? And I think what she tries in this one and what I think really becomes clear as the movies goes on is what she's trying to put into place here is the connection between Neo and Trinity and and the and that love connection that they have. I think at the end of the day, she does manipulate Neo, telling making him think that he's not the one, making him go into the Morpheus thing. You know, he she gives him the little push that is gonna make himself sacrifice, that is actually gonna be the thing that allows him to access his whole oneness powers. Mm-hmm. But she also, crucially, even more importantly, she manipulates Trinity, even though we don't see it, t- by telling her that she's going to fall in love with the one. Mm-hmm. And that is the thing that brings Neo back to life at the end. And, and you know, you know what I'm saying? That is actually, I, I had a revelation for the first time while watching it the, uh, uh, yesterday, um, that I think that's why they named the character Trinity, is because she fills out that third piece of misinformation that the oracle has told one of three people that when you combine those three quote-unquote predictions or or foresights uh yeah. fortune tellings that she's made those three add up to what unlocks the one actually coming into being um mm-hmm. yeah and she what the other revelation i had is I have, the first time I watched this movie, I was really just drawn in by the spell of it. And it's it's just so charming and enchanting. And I was really, like, mystified. And I was really buying into the mysticism of, like, Morpheus being this prophet and the mm-hmm. oracle knowing the future and having visions. And thinking of it like, you know, like a traditional story, uh, uh, um, fortune teller, uh, uh somebody with magic powers that can see the future but thinking of it in literal terms as a machine she's an algorithm and we have yep. things like that we have predictive algorithms that can very accurately predict based on available data based on things that have happened within this system before what will happen in the future and it's and it's they, just yeah yeah Not it's just that, such a perspective shift when you realize that 100% and we have algorithms as well for example the Netflix algorithm that mm-hmm. is that is also I think willing to take certain chances you know like it takes commands from high above I think to promote certain things to make you watch certain things it yep. also predicts what you will like but I think it is also capable of throwing something weird out there and being like you know what if I put this in front of them will they watch it will they not you know just to mm-hmm. see how you react and then keep learning from how you react to that to drill down into that if you and i both looked up the same movie or show on netflix Mm -hmm. i bet that we would have uh, a slightly different image a thumbnail image oh um, yes that represents that movie or show and it's because the algorithm it's it's like a a, Mm -hmm. an extension of what you're saying it knows not only like well, you might not like this show if I tell you the premise of it, but if I show you this one out-of-context image of something that you're going to yeah. see in the show, it matches images from other things that I know you like. So right. that might draw you in to check it out, even though it the concept of it is not the type of mm-hmm. thing you would normally gravitate towards. So yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's funny that they like they're like, "Yeah, I know for sure what you'll go for." 
Like, you'll definitely eat a cookie if I offer one to you, um, that kind of thing. But, like, I don't know. I don't know. You, I, but I want to see if, like, you would try um, a muffin or so. I don't know. Like, that. maybe yeah, that's like, the best yeah, analogy. Yeah. No, um, but I get what you're saying. And by the way, that scene with the Oracle is my favorite scene in the whole movie. I, mm. I think it's the... Yeah, it is my favorite scene in the whole of this first movie because, I have to be honest, it's because it's the most sci-fi kind of like um you know dense concepts and ideas scene of the whole thing that that are kind of still a little complicated and vague and they don't you know there's a lot of explanation in the movie the oracle scene is so up to interpretation that it is what engages me the most and that's what i love about the movies that follow as well it's all those like weird scenes that don't make a lot of sense until you watch them three four times and you kind of piece them together that i think for a lot of people can be frustrating especially in the later movies but though that's what i really love about them and that's what i really love about the oracle scene and what i just thought now also is the moment which I have always loved about that scene. One of my favorite moments is when the thing with the vase, right? When, when Neo yeah. comes into the kitchen yeah. and she's like, don't worry about the vase. And he breaks the vase and he's like, I'm sorry. How did you, how did you know I was going to do that? And she says like, what's really going to bake your noodle is would you have done it if I hadn't told you? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the whole thing with her manipulation, right? Like what she's telling Neo and Morpheus and Trinity is all things that she kind of is telling them so that they will do it kind of, the question's still out there. Does Trinity actually fall in love with Neo just of her own volition? Or does she fall with, in love with Neo because the Oracle told her that she would? Mm-hmm. Um, does Neo, why does Neo, does Neo sacrifice himself for Morpheus because the Oracle told him that he would have to do that at one point? You know, and, and, right. and all and of that And if he went stuff. into that thinking he was the one, then he might not have been willing to to fight as hard to save Morpheus because he had to go in thinking I need Morpheus because Morpheus needs to find the one and I'm not it. And right. he's yeah. thinking, yeah, if he thought, if he thought I am the one then he was like, well, Morpheus, we can sacrifice Morpheus because I am, I can't die myself because then everyone's fucked. But yeah. if I am not the one, then Morpheus cannot die. I have to save him. Yeah. Even, even though like it proves that Morpheus was wrong. So why would you continue? <laughs> believing in him and, and subscribing 100% to his, but whatever. Um, <laughs> one thing I one thing I kind of noticed, a very, very small detail I noticed for the first time uh, was when, when Neo walks into the Oracle's kitchen, he kind of bumps the vase a little bit. Like you see it in the corner of the frame moving a little bit the moment he enters. So he almost knocks it over right away before she says, don't worry about the vase. So you could make an <laughs> argument that she only said that because not that she predicted it's definitely he's definitely going to knock over the vase but he's standing so close to it that an accident could inevitably happen anybody right. can see anybody with eyes can see that coming like one of those kind of things it's like um, one of those psychics right when you go to a psychic and they kind of like read you in order to tell you what you want to hear that kind of they're thing they're just observant of your behavior so yeah. far yeah and they're just pretty, yeah exactly um the other the other question i had is do you think the waiting room itself is part of the sale for Neo? That's interesting because I thought about that with all the kids doing all those power things. Yep. And I the, wonder... The candidates. Yeah, do those kids actually exist, this potential people within the Matrix who have... Because if they're able to do that, then they are able to have... to bend the reality of the Matrix kind of like Neo does. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't come back in, in other movies. So I think... 
I was wondering about that, but I think I'm going to buy your pitch to what you just said, that this is like a thing that she's putting on to like, to like sell him on the whole idea. It's like yeah. setting up the ambience, right? Like she's like, I'm going to put, yeah, exactly. He, she's like manipulating him. So she's like, I'm going to put a bunch of kids outside so that he feels like he's not the one. We have all these other prospects, you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. The other implication of that, and this is a question I have because I might not have been paying attention enough, and I feel like this is answered definitively somewhere in the saga, is 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 everyone that, that Morpheus pulls out of the Matrix and like brings onto his crew potentially the one, and he goes to great lengths to get, get them out and has to like bring them to the Oracle to find out whether or not they're the one? Or... Is Neo truly unique and like he's just been assembling a, a crew of people that are generally uh, gifted or questioning or, you know, able, to, able, ready to wake up? Um, mm. Or has it yeah. been like, you know, a one by one series of like, hey, you might be the one, let's find out. Oh, dang, you're not. But <laughs> now you're going to help me find <laughs> let's him. Let's keep looking. Yeah. I think, I think, I think you're right when you say that the, the franchise does not uh, answer that for sure i don't think that's clear but i do think that it's a mix of both my impression is that it's a mix of looking for the one and also waking up the people of, that you're noticing are ready to be woken up right and it's kind of like this search and and obviously once they wake up you bring them to the oracle so that she tells them something about themselves and where do they fit so i think Maybe there's a couple of people in that crew, maybe Trinity, that Morpheus thought could have been the one. And in the case of Trinity, we will learn later on, she wouldn't have been far off in thinking that she's the one, right? Because she's essential to the whole thing. Arguably, and this is she's this is meta knowledge of all four one. movies, she's arguably the point five because you need two halves to make the one. Like you can't yeah. have just yeah, there isn't the one without mm -hmm. It has the to other. be two, <laughs> two people combined. Exactly. Um, well, I guess, yeah, I guess what I'm asking is like, was there a, a, a two week period during which Morpheus truly believed in his soul that Mouse was the one and he had to rescue him and like go to great lengths <laughs> and then that didn't work out. So like Cypher is definitely the one we got to, you know, get him out. Oh, we took him to the Oracle. The Oracle said otherwise. All right. It, well, it's it's definitely APOC or it's definitely Switch. Like, is it is it that or do each of them just have like. Hey, you're. Hey, guess what? Um, you're a computer programmer in this matrix world. Uh, you're just very observant that something's not right, and like we have this Zion world that we could open your eyes and awaken you to. Oh, by the way, we're also looking for this guy called mm -hmm. the One. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a mix of. I mean, we will later on learn that there's more people out there, you know, flying in ships like Morpheus. So I think the whole idea of the humans at Zion is yeah. to wake people up and join in the fight. But Morpheus is particularly zealous about it, right? Like he is a believer. So he might be the one who's going around trying to wake up the one, whereas the others are more focused on, let's just get as many people as we can so we can fight the machines. I think that is the answer. The fact that there's multiple ships, multiple captains, Morpheus is just one of them, and he's kind of a zealot. I think that's that's what it is. Is like, yeah, because frankly, Neo might not even be like uniquely special. It's just he was told that he is, so he spends more time training and and believes more in or looks more for those entry points in the source code of the Matrix that he can manipulate, um, which arguably anybody could do if they're if they're jacked into it 
That's another big question um, of what is possible or is not possible. And if they were to do a fifth movie, which I doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, and I wouldn't want it to happen if the Wachowskis are not involved. Uh, but if they were to do a fifth movie, I would be interested to st explore that idea a little bit more of like the one versus how much can any w one person in, within the matrix do with, or is it, you know, is it, I guess it's the question that comes back to this original movie as well, the theater of fate versus you making your own destiny, right? And um, is, Matri is Neo the one actually, and that's why he does this thing? Or does he do all these things because he's been told that he's the one? Same thing with mm -hmm. the Oracle thing and the vase that we were talking about. Yeah. I'd say by the end of this movie, if this movie is the only one that exists, um, Maybe not. Like, maybe he's not, but he believed that he was enough to make a huge change and to win the day. But the second movie absolutely confirms, yeah, there's a whole... There, the concept of the one is a real thing. Morpheus was right, and it's you. Um, it, 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 I think it definitively confirms that. Uh, yeah. But then again, like I said, but the fourth movie kind of tells in the us, fourth one, yeah. well, yeah, you, you're half of the one and the other half is Trinity. And when you're combined, you're the one. But I think there, that fourth movie also opens up to that, to the first, to what you were saying about the first one of like, maybe there is more, like maybe it's not just mm -hmm. about being the one, but there could be the capacity in the, in the right connection and emotions come into it, right? Like the thing that... Um, and also another thing I wanted to talk about was like the idea of love becomes a very important thing, especially for the fourth movie in determining. Mm -hmm. And it could be the thing that uh, makes you go beyond into being able to become a superhero like Neo and and Trinity. Yeah. So the so the machines maybe came up with this myth of the one to keep people to keep the the uh, the the people that escape the refugees the the rebels to keep them suppressed. Um, to make them believe like, okay, once this, the, once the one has emerged or once it's been confirmed that you're not the one, don't even try to, to gain these superpowers. Don't even try to see the source code and be able only to Because only one person can do it. Because only one person's capable of it and it's not you, even mm -hmm. though that's just, yeah, that's just yeah, to keep them from... Although maybe the human mind and the imagination is strong enough that anyone could do it if they believe they are the one. Because I really, I like, what I think about a lot is that when they're plugged in, like you die in the matrix, you die in the chair that you're plugged into. And they show that with mouse getting, you know, shot up, um, by all the FBI, the SWAT team and in his chair, he's like, buh, 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 buh. but it's not like bullet holes appear in him. It's just, he starts like bleeding from the mouth because his brain believed that his body suffered so much trauma that it's shut down and died. But mm -hmm. Neo gets filled with bullet holes later on, um, mm -hmm. at close range and Trinity is like, hey, I love you. Yeah, her whole speech and whatever and kisses him. And he just like is like, oh, yeah, bullet holes don't matter because they yeah. didn't physically enter my body. And that's OK. Um, so let's so let's talk about that. Can we? Because yeah. that was for a long time. One of the big things that annoyed me a little bit about the first Matrix, one of the things I didn't love was this weird, it's a weird moment that all of a sudden, because Trinity loves him and gives him a kiss, he's able to survive and, and res basically resurrects himself and, and comes back to life and finishes the job, right? Um, I had always felt, I don't know how you feel about it, that, that, it, that that romance between the two of them wasn't so properly set up in this movie. 
um, that I didn't see. Where is the moment when they really bond with each other, when they really fall in love, you know, that kind of mm. thing. I don't know if you have a different take on it, but I had always struggled with that, with how much of this movie, how the climax of this movie depends on that. And I think my opinion on it has changed with the other movies and where they go. But I don't know if you have any, a, a thought about that, about the role of their relationship here. I think that Neo is deliberately very much a blank slate character. Mm -hmm. um, so he's not pursuing Trinity romantically uh, in, the, in the movie all that um, deliberately or all, all that um, persistently. No. Um, but, but Trinity, like everything we know about her is she doesn't seem like the kind of, she's like an action hero and doesn't seem like the kind of, like she's very serious Mm -hmm. and doesn't seem like she would have the time for romance or would care about romance or whatever. But she, what she cares about is competence, like somebody that can get things done and somebody that has the courage <laughs> to do things and the intrepidity to like put themselves in danger and, and take action when it needs to be taken. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that she looks up, she follows Morpheus for all of those reasons, but when she sees when she meets Neo and he's just like living up to all of these these things that he's supposed to live up to. And he's when he doesn't seem like he's living up to them, he's still going forward anyway. I think that makes her maybe despite her tough exterior kind of like fall for him. It kind of it kind of it kind of breaks down her walls because she's like, I can't I can't keep denying that this guy's the real deal. Um, yeah. And he's, every, yeah. he's everything, he's every quality that I admire in a person, which is, you know, competence and just courage. So, yeah. And he is the one. He is rad as hell. He looks like Keanu Reeves circa 1999. So he is hot. That's definitely a point in his favor. Yeah. And and you are seeing him, especially towards the end of the movie, you are seeing him do all this incredible, not only do all these incredible things, but also be so uh selfless about it right like he is yep. sacrificing himself for morpheus and for her he believes in the cause so much just like she does so when you put it in those terms i totally see how she is uh you know how she gets turned on by all of this and how she <laughs> she starts to be and and also of course we just talked about this we cannot forget that she has been told that she will fall in love with the one and that's a big so part I of think, it too. Yeah, and I, I think, think she this, would use the term "love" if the oracle hadn't said anything to that. She would feel uh, we. I think the attraction to Neo is visible in her performance, mm -hmm. but I don't think if Trinity were to describe it, she would use the word "love" unless the oracle had given her that 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 uh, prediction. Yeah, because she's feeling what she's feel. It's like being in the presence of like if Jesus was here, right? Like you would be like completely overwhelmed. And be and but but you wouldn't know how to describe a, such an intense feeling, probably something that you've never felt before. But the oracle has told her that that is love, that she's gonna fall in love mm -hmm. with the one. So the moment that happens and she feels that, she thinks that is love. She understands it to be love, and she understands it. Oh, this is what the oracle said. I'm falling. I am feeling so intensely towards this person who is in danger now. It's because I'm in love with him, just like she said that I is. I think the. Um... The Hollywood notes version of this movie that would have tried to show that would have had the like the the training fight sequence be um, Morpheus or I'm sorry would have been uh, Neo and Trinity fighting and that would have been used 
as like a right, metaphor for, them for to their, flirt. Yeah. their courtship, their flirting. Yeah, because they actually they, uh, they kind of do that in the Animatrix. There is like a scene like mm. that in one of the shorts in the Animatrix um, mm-hmm. where two characters are, are in the sparring room and it's definitely very flirty. They're like sort of cutting each other's clothes off one by one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because I don't think there is a scene like that, right? There's no scene, I don't think, where they are, like, sitting down and just talking to each other, Trinity and, and Neo. Not really, no. Which I always no. found to be a weakness of the movie, but now I think it's, I'm starting to feel like maybe it's not. Like maybe it's, like, part of the, actually makes it stronger in terms of the design and, and the whole idea of what is free will and what isn't and how why things happen in this way. I would argue that it does, but only from the standpoint that I can't imagine adding any any scenes or details to this movie and improving it. You know, <laughs> right. this movie is a 10 out yeah. of such a 10 out of 10 for me that I cannot picture um, filling in that gap and it making the movie better. This movie might be a 10 out of 10 for me when once we're done talking, because like I'm starting to bring up some of the things that that I had had trouble with in the past. This whole thing with Trinity being one of them. But actually talking about it now makes me feel like it's not a weakness. So maybe I'll bring up some of the other things and then we'll figure it out that there's a, there's a more to it. Um, and I agree with you that having that scene in which they talk to each other wouldn't have made it a better movie. It's like one of the scenes that always feels forced in so many movies that it doesn't need to be there. Like, you know, it's not necessary. We, we get it from this. And actually it's interesting Seeing it this time around, it's interesting that it comes as a little bit of a. It comes as a bit of a surprise. Some people might think, "Oh, it's just because they're the two male and female leads in this movie that they're falling in love." There's no reason for it. But the next movies are really going to make a case for why that is important. Yeah, the fourth one especially, and it's and it's the thing I loved the most about the fourth movie. Once I realized that I loved that movie, <laughs> uh, but we'll t- yeah, we'll talk about that when we review that one. Um, I have two more questions that are sort of about, like, what we've been talking about a lot, which is the crew and, like, the humans um, mm-hmm. and Morpheus's, like, croup. Um, but then after after those questions, I really want to talk about Agent Smith. I think that's, like, a big Great. a big topic on its own. Um, so my two, my two other, like, questions, wh- uh, one is um, just very simply, like, right at the, t- at the beginning of the movie – uh, the very first spoken lines like we hear when the credits are coming up and they're doing that cool, you know, raindrop effect um, and showing you all the kanji and the numbers and the scrolling, uh, you hear a conversation between Cypher and Trinity and she says something like, you know, she's taking over, basically she's taking over Cypher's ships early um, and he didn't expect that. And at some point she's like, oh, did you hear that? Uh and she thinks that the line is bugged. And then that leads mm-hmm. into the scene where she's getting surrounded by yeah. um, the FBI agents. So was Cypher trying to get her killed in that moment? Like, was he already... I mean, we know that he had already sold out by then. But was hmm. he trying to get her killed to, like, make make things easier for what he's trying to pull off later on? I think on? that's a good re- read of it. I think that, that tracks... Um, I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's definitely tracks. And I guess, yeah, I hadn't thought of when exactly does Cypher turn on them. He has to have turned on them before the events of the movie begin. He he does in that scene. The reason I know for sure that he did is in that scene um, after they crash the truck into the payphone that, that mm-hmm. Trinity escapes in. Uh, the agents have a conversation with each other about um, 
the inf- like whether the informant or the confirmed that they've confirmed that the informant is real. Uh, they, mm. they mentioned something about the informant. So uh, uh-huh. that being Cypher. OK, yeah. Yeah. So I could see that that he's trying to get rid of her. Yeah. I mean, why not? He he she is like the she's definitely the most powerful of, of Morpheus's um, crew. So you would it would make sense to get rid of her. Yeah. Um, the other question is, do, uh, do you think that people like Tank and Dozer who were not born in the Matrix, so they don't have a Jack thing in the back of their head, they, they can't mm-hmm. go into the Matrix, they can't plug into it. Right. Um, but do you think they get access to some kind of like VR, tr- similar VR training program or something where they can like download Kung Fu and shit like that? Or does that require you to have that, that interface? No, I think that requires you to have a plug in your in your body. I think mm. uh, I think their only experience of the matrix is either through the uh, code on the computer or through they. There is like these monitors that have like a vague, very low res uh, version of what is going on. I think that's all they can see of it. Okay. Okay, that's a bummer. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, al- I, cause, I don't cause know I how you would have it. Rather be born in the Matrix if that's the case, <laughs> because then you get to experience it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it sucks to just be stuck in that horrible world. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, let's let's talk about Agent Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is um, Hugo Weaving was already kind of a, a name in Australia, um, but this was, I mean, this was definitely his first like big movie that American audiences were were exposed to him. Um, yeah. There was, I don't know if you've seen Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which is an Australian movie uh, about a, three drag queens on a road trip. It's kind of like that Tu Wong Fu, but Australian, Australian version. And that had some success in America, I think. Um, was probably the one big movie he did before okay. The Matrix that I can think of. Um. Uh, but in this movie, he plays Agent Smith, um, who is one of three, one of three main agents that we see. We f- we find out that there are there are several more of them uh, operating in the Matrix, but mm-hmm. essentially they are they're described as sentient programs. So the Matrix built them, wrote them, wrote their code, um, and and designed them to operate within the Matrix to sort of uh, well to serve multiple purposes. But the the fact that they're sentient is really interesting, um, because they're they're given you know parameters, they're given orders, they're given a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of access to uh, a lot of the system of the matrix itself. But like we were discussing earlier, the the architect has also limited some of their knowledge and some of their access. Um, but it's and, interesting that they yeah. do have the capacity to change, kind of like the Oracle as well. They, these programs, it seems like the computers cannot fully control the programs. There seems to be something that prevents them from doing that. Like, you know, if they're going to create a program that's going to be efficient, and they, it seems like if AI is involved, they can only control so much. It seems like anything that has to do with intelligence in the Wachowski's version of the world, be it AI or human intelligence brings with it a certain individuality and the ability to change your environments. And I think that is something that they feel very personally, you know. Um, you can see it throughout their movies. Um, 
in you can see it in Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas, and then obviously in the Matrix movies. And I think also maybe something to do with their own personal history as as you know as trans people who have uh, come out and transitioned and seen and have had to assert their individuality and the vision of themselves that they have versus the, what the world was telling them. You know, that really brings that idea that to be a, a mind, a brain, a consciousness, you have to have that self-determination. And I think that's what we see in, in the, not only in the humans in the matrix, but in the programs, especially in the later movies. And I think Agent Smith, like the Oracle, is a good example of that. Um, especially later on. I'm going to tell you right now, as we talk about these movies in the future, Agent Smith is the biggest thing in the whole Matrix that I still can't fully understand what exactly is going on with him and what the Wachowskis are trying to say with him. So I think we're going to have some very interesting conversations about his role in the movies to come. All right. Well, let's let's drill down into that because I I think think Mm -hmm. he's such a fascinating character because he's very much the inverse of Neo. Um, he mm. is on the opposite path of Neo, and that's why they ultimately collide. Like, they're they're on their own journey in opposite directions, and they meet at a point where they, ha- they have to get past one another in order to achieve their individual goals. Um, mm-hmm. for, for Neo, that is, um, they use the term keys a lot and gateways, and yeah. they... Uh, Morpheus, when he's describing the agents, talks about them as like the gatekeepers and they have all the keys Mm -hmm. that they need to be able to go. I guess they don't he doesn't really lay out the entire plan or or whatever his goal is, but it's implied that he wants to like be able to access the root system, I guess, of the Matrix if he can um, to be able to shut it down. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I I guess that's the simplest way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) and the agents he sees as they're obviously the ones keeping us keeping us from getting through that gate because um, the, they, they their their job is to kill uh, their job is to find problems to find people who have been awoken and are hacking into the matrix and jumping in and and disrupting things uh, disrupting the, the the neat and nor- formal order of everything um, and to seek and destroy them, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, but interestingly, when Neo has, I'm sorry, when uh, Agent Smith has Morpheus held held prisoner, all of the stuff that he's saying to Morpheus is like, you have the key that I need um, to get out. I want to get out of this. I want, I don't want to yes. be here in the Matrix anymore. It's, it stinks and it mm-hmm. just permeates my entire being. Um, and I'm like trying to like... I'm trying to wrap my head around what I know of how computers work and like trying to imagine like, like, what do I, what analogy do I use for what, what (laughs) Agent Smith is? And the best I can come up with, and I hope you can help me out with this, Mm -hmm. um, is like, let's say you've got like a program like Norton Antivirus and you, you can, you have it on a disc Uh um, or on a hard, on a, you have it on an external hard drive. The program, the, all of the program files are there. That's Agent Smith. You can plug that into a computer and install it onto your system, and then it's going to do its thing. It's going to search for viruses, uh, list them for you to ask you if you want to erase them or problematic files. It's going to list them all, all for you, uh-huh, amalgamate uh-huh. them, and offer to delete them. 
Agent Smith seems to be like a version of that program that is able to not only like find them, but but it doesn't ask you if you want to delete them. It doesn't bother no. with the user interface. It's just like, yeah, I'm gonna take it one step further. I'm going to, I have the agency, I have the mm-hmm. autonomy, I'm sentient enough mm-hmm. to just take the next step and make that call. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but so also... he's sort of gotten stuck in a system that he was installed on and mm-hmm. he wants to get back onto the hard drive so that he can be installed in a better system or a system that he would rather be in, or possibly he just wants to be deleted. Yeah, he is the best agent because he is the most effective and the, at, at deleting viruses, let's say. He's the most effective at his job. But what makes him the most effective also makes him... It's kind of like when you keep getting promoted and eventually you get to a... To a no, that's not. That's a bad analogy. Forget about that. Um, it's just that he's so good at it that he has... Um, he has outgrown his position. That's what I was trying to say. Mm. He 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 is so good, but what makes him good is that he's so effective. But what makes it, but that same thing makes him hate his job. He's like too smart. He's too aware. He's too self-aware. He's too smart. He's seen and, too and much. The, the intelligence, I think, and again to go back to that idea that the Wachowskis, I think, really see intelligence as the ability to see your surroundings and want to take control over who what your place in the world is i think everyone every character that is smart and effective and powerful in the matrix is a character that is not fully comfortable with their surroundings unless they are controlling them you know the Mm. architect we will learn later is comfortable because he's in control but the even the oracle is is very smart and effective and but she's not fully in control and that's why she starts bringing these new things to it. Smith is so good at his job that he wants to take over. He wants to have his own computer. He doesn't want to be stuck here taking orders. Yeah, the Merovingian is another example when we get to the next movie of like Yeah. Yeah, he he in his palace, he's fully in control of everything, mm-hmm. but once he is exiled from that or taken out of that, um he goes cuckoo. Yeah. Yeah, he becomes a rampant. Uh and the same yeah, with the just, humans, right? Yeah. The the humans who are awoke, awoke, who wake up and and start the fight are the ones who are not comfortable with their surroundings. The ones who don't accept the matrix for what it is. Wait, say that again. The the I mean, the humans that we meet, the ones who are waking, have been woken up by Morpheus and are fighting, are all sure. humans who were probably not comfortable in their place. They felt like Neo, like they weren't in control. They didn't really feel like this world was right. Um, mm-hmm. so, so you see that, that, you know, this actually brings me, I don't know if you, if it's okay to change the topic a little bit, sure, uh, we can go back to agent Smith, but this brings me to one of the other things. I think the biggest thing that is my, uh, I would say my biggest issue in as far as there's an issue that I have with this movie. Um, what do you think of the idea? It's kind of like the action and the violence and it's particularly the idea that Morpheus gives that once you're in the matrix, everyone's your enemy. And I think, and I'm struggling to figure that out. And I wonder if that's something that changes in the movies as the Wachowskis keep making them. It does feel to me like a little bit like a comfortable way to justify them doing all these action sequences and being able to shoot everybody. Conrado, this is such a good question because I'm I'm so glad that um, I'm really glad that we're talking about this movie because like because the Matrix Resurrections just came out and 
this was my first time watching it after watching um, mm. Matrix, Res- Matrix Resurrections. And so that was something I thought about so much was exactly what you articulated so well just there. Like Mor- Morpheus, when he's taking Neo through the training program, he says um, he they're looking around all, all of the people and he says, you know, these are all the millions of people. They're all plugged into the Matrix, the very minds of the people we're trying to save. But they're part of the system and that makes them our enemy. And I mm-hmm. was think like already in that scene, I'm like, that's really oversimplifying it. Um, yeah. Because ev- every single one of those people is another potential, if not Neo, they're at least a potential Switch or APOC or Trinity, you know, like mm-hmm, at least mm-hmm. that. Um, and you're just justifying your uh, killing them to get them out of your way because you need to accomplish a goal. Um and so, yeah, I mean, even if you are fighting for the greater good, it, it really does become questionable when they break into that government building where yeah. Morpheus is being held. They, and they go through the metal detector because, like, I don't know, the, I, I was trying to imagine the lives of those people that are guarding that, the lobby of that building and mm-hmm. what that experience was like for them when these people came <laughs> to the metal detector and they're flipping around on the walls and disappearing behind pillars and like moving in so fast that they can't even they can't even like see them mm-hmm. um moving like that must have been terrifying that must have been and and ultimately i don't know these people are doing this job that they're doing and guarding this building that they're doing through not because they're villainous not because they've made a a bad choice or an evil choice yeah i i um, see that yeah i see and I know there's a lot of people who love that that action sequence in particular. It has always struck me in the, a little bit the wrong way um, because of the things that you're saying and because of what we're talking about. And I also I'm thinking that this see that element of it seems to me like something that the Wachowskis as young filmmakers and as people who had really never made a movie of that size. You know, this is their second movie. And I've not, have you seen yeah. their first movie, Bound? Uh, Bound, yep. Yeah, with Gina Which Gershon. is so good. If you haven't mm-hmm. seen it, you're listening and to Jennifer this. Tilly. Gina Gershon, Jennifer Tilly, and Joe Pantoliano, who comes back to play Cypher. And they also wrote Assassins, right? Before I think that. that's true. But they do bound, and it's a great, great movie. You should watch it if you haven't. And then that's basically how they justify for Warner Brothers to give them a bigger budget to do The Matrix, which was mm. a crazy idea. And... You know, but I think still then they had to kind of prove themselves and they wanted to do all this action stuff and they wanted to bring all this like cool stuff to it. And I do think that as it goes in the other movies, they work really hard to ch- to change that and to and to transform that into something else, uh, into a different kind of action, into a different kind of um, relationship to the action and the violence, it's particularly in the fourth movie. But I think you can even see it in the second and the third Um there's much less gun violence in the second movie in particular. Um, and, and reloaded. The, and, yeah, and then in the fourth one, Neo literally does not even touch a gun. He never no. picks up a gun or uses a gun at all in the fourth movie. And I think it's I think it's exactly what you said. Like they made this when they were younger. Also the culture was different. And uh, yeah. I think in general, guns were considered cooler in movies back in nineteen ninety nine than they are now. Um, There's also the element that, you know, Columbine happened not long after The Matrix was released. And there was a whole thing of like, right. 
was the matrix an inspiration for the people you know and then this so they i think that's something that really weighed on them that that idea that they might have played a role in that i have a very strong opinion about that and it's um because yeah i've definitely you know i grew up uh I, I i was like in my i was in high school when this came out and and so right. that's when columbine happened also um very shortly after this movie came out and yeah i heard the same kind of things on the news same kind of criticisms that like oh it inspired mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. this mass shooting and all that it inspired is the style of clothing that those kids wore when they went in to shoot up that school. It yeah. didn't like it didn't give them the idea. School shootings have been happening. It just Columbine was like w- w- one of the biggest ones that the news covered that year. Mm. But mm-hmm. school shootings had been happening up until then. Um, but because they wore the trench coats and, you know, called themselves the trench coat mafia and like it was all very yeah. sensationalized. And I mean, frankly, because it happened in a white high school. <laughs> um, well, that too. It was covered differently. And yeah, the Matrix just happened, like became sort of a scapegoat for some people. But mm-hmm. yeah, I feel very strongly that um, the Matrix, the Wachowskis should not feel any sort of responsibility for like inspiring violent acts or anything like that. Yeah. But, but it shows that they are at least like uh, I think it definitely contemplative and like respect and like respectful people and that they think about these things because of the fact that they started like making those things look less cool in their later movies. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, when I go back yeah. and watch that lobby scene, like I said, I'm I'm more thinking about the I'm more thinking about the guards in the building as victims of this terrible circumstance that put them in in the way of our heroes. Um, more so than I'm thinking of like how cool it is that our heroes are flipping and shooting guns and hitting everything they want to hit and accomplishing their mission. Like it's distracting almost. Yeah. And one last thing is that, um, I mean, in terms of the Wachowskis, it's not just that. I mean, I agree with you about like, they are not, the movie is not responsible for the violence. I, I don't think that's really how movies work and how we relate to movies in that way. Um, but I do think that it affected the Wachowskis. And I think throughout the, mm-hmm. their career, you do see, I mean, talk about people whose movies have been misinterpreted, you know, and been put into that position, not only with the Columbine stuff, but also with the whole red pill thing that's become like this kind of like men's rights yeah. and, and right wing thing that they are clearly so against. And they they are trying, they were making this movie about self-determination going through their own identity discovery of who they are. Uh, and it has been totally misinterpreted. And so I think that really shows more and more as the movies go on. And, and, and they also become maybe more obvious about what they want to say, but I think it's also maybe a little bit of not wanting to be misinterpreted because they've been misinterpreted in the past. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ingredients that went into like the, the baking the cake that is that scene that like, you Mm -hmm. know, it's, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool sequence. Like, I mean, I can admit that it's, it's very fun and kinetic and like awesome and really well, cause it's so well well done. done. It's so well crafted and the music is so good. You get the, you get all of this bullet time effect that was introduced earlier in the movie, but used kind of sparingly up until this scene and now Mm -hmm. they're just like going full throttle with it um so it's it's awesome uh but yeah i do think like if they were if the wachowskis now were to go back and direct that scene it would probably be like 
maybe they'd be going through the same obstacle, breaking into the same lobby, but they'd be using their kung fu and like disable, maybe you know, uh, incapacitating all the guards or something. Yeah, yeah, um, it'd probably be different. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's the other thing. And I really want to talk more about the action, probably when we talk about Reloaded, which I think has the best action of the series. Mm. Uh, but talk about something new, right? Like bringing this kind of like Hong Kong and anime type of action to to American movies in the '90s mm. was like a huge thing. It was like unseen, you know. So, so what about the like when when an agent takes over somebody? Like when they go into that helicopter pilot um, yeah. or the homeless guy. What happens physically to the person in the goo pod? when that happens to their avatar in the matrix that's a good question i am not sure i'm not sure what's going on there i don't think it's ever explained right and i and i have wondered it is either that that person was an agent all along i don't think that's what it is I, or were they no, a program or or a, like a fake person and i think maybe what happens is the agent takes over and the person and, and because the person in the matrix is a projection of that person's brain Mm-hmm. So I think either the the person that gets projected somewhere else and the agent simply takes up that space and they're using the person as a like a monitor sort of thing or the 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 person just like is like you know it's like a pause they pause the person and then they plug them back in after or the other option is that the person just dies you know the t- agent takes over and the body is discarded well in every so in, in the examples that we see in the movie the person that they take over is so that they can get closer to uh, Trinity or Neo or whoever and then they inevitably get killed um one of them you know gets gets shot yeah. up by Trinity and then they show the dead body like the agent jumps mm-hmm. out of it because the body's no longer useful and they show the dead body that's right that's right the pilot the other one is the homeless guy um who Smith takes over and then he he tries to hold Neo on the tracks while the train is coming. Right. Um, because a very cool thing about the, how the way the agents fight is like a big part of their fighting style is taking hits because it doesn't matter to them. They're not going to feel right. pain and they can just jump into another body or like rebuild their body. Um, so yeah, in the body of this homeless person, he's holding Neo's head down and gets hit by a train. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're never going to find out what happened to that person. But right. I would. I just would. Lo- I would like well, to. Well, he died. See... I think. That, I think. I think they die. I think that's what happens. Is well, that no, that agent... person. I mean, yes, those ones. Well, because they died in the Matrix, so their goo pod yeah. died as well. Um, but I would. I would be interested to see, like, if they jump into somebody temporarily and then jump into somebody else. Like, does that right. does that experience kill the person, or is it just circumstance stance that they died Do in a fight them? after the agent jumped into them? Yeah. Maybe maybe this is yeah, something that we'll question. see in the sequels that I'm just forgetting that it was in the sequels. <laughs> I don't think I don't think we do, but let's keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Um, either way, that would be a horrible horrible experience. Like it looks like they're suffering <laughs> when the agent jumps into them. Yeah. Oh, one hundred percent. So we're was, talking about. Yeah. No, go, go ahead. ahead. You go ahead. I was just gonna say that that was one of the things that like even though yeah this movie is rated R. But it's mm-hmm. not very bloody, but that's one of the things that, like, really shocked and horrified me was seeing that, like, somebody getting just just possessed and taken over by a yeah. computer program. <laughs> There's a lot of disturbing imagery in the movie. The, I mean, when they wake up in the pots, that is, like, some pretty great body horror sort of thing with all the plugs and, like, you know, 
uh, just the, the scope goom, of it. Just the when they zoom out it. and show like how many there are. And also the scene, the image that I had forgotten that is really striking uh, last night, I thought was when they are talking about how the the machines kind of like use the humans to turn them into goop to feed the other humans. And you see like the kind of this black goop coming down and a baby kind of like being fed that it's also very disturbing, striking Mm -hmm. image. Yeah. Cause it's all just, it's, it's all just cold calculating efficiency. It's all the, all the stuff that's ever been written about, like we're, you know, we're the labor force, we're grist Mm -hmm. for the mill, you know, you just get ground down and, and recycled to feed the next generation. And that's all you're good for. It's, it's so well done and in in a in a crazy sci-fi futuristic uh visual way. Yeah. Totally, totally. What do you think of the fact that the way that Neo defeats Agent Smith is by going inside his body and destroying it from within? Here's what I think. The agents, that's that's a everything about the, the I think the easiest way for me to wrap my mind around what the Matrix is is to think of it like a video game or like like a, an online you know multiplayer RPG. So Neo starts out as like a level one player who um, you don't. Well, I, level one is I'm I'm already used. I'm already filling my <laughs> analogy with holes because <laughs> in this game you start out with all of the. You start out with with you could do anything. You just don't know it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and the higher level players are the ones that have played long enough that they're good at doing the things that you can do within the rules of the game. So Agent Smith is like a gamer with much more experience. And so when Neo sees, oh, jumping, hacking into other avatars is a thing that's possible in this world, he just has to see uh, Agent Smith do it a few times, and then he tries it out and against Agent Smith, and he, he successfully pulls it off. Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder, that's something that I had forgotten a little bit, that that's how he defeats him. And now that, you know, Smith is my big project. I'm going to, I told you, but I'm telling you again, for this rewatch, I really want to figure out what the deal is with Agent Smith and what what Chelsea are trying to do there. And And I think the fact that Neo goes into his body in this movie at the end does play a role in what he does next and how their stories intersect in the future movies. I also think it's just a great metaphor, number one, for the whole movie of like to being destroyed from within. You know, Neo is inside the Matrix and he's going to take the Matrix down from the inside, you know, by going back in, but knowing the truth. It's kind of like just physicalizing that whole thing. And it's also an interesting thing to think again in terms of like the trans allegory of the movie. I know there's a lot of people Mm. who have read a lot into the movie and see it now as really like an allegory for like trans awakening and, and, you know, the kind of like the bodies and the body that you see yourself within versus the shell of your body. And that really, that image of Neo coming out of Smith really feels uh, very strong in that, in that direction. So I think that people um, see a trans allegory in this movie because there is one. I mean, well, yeah, one hundred percent. The one of my favorite characters is, is Switch, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you know this, but um, in the original draft of the script, Switch was explicitly trans, uh, and the the way that they. I, I absolutely love this detail, and I wish that it, I, this is okay. I, I said before I can't imagine any like changes necessarily improving the movie, but this might be the exception. This is the one. 
And it's not even like adding to the movie. It's if they hadn't taken this out of the script. I wish they hadn't taken this Mm -hmm. out of the script, which is that when Switch is in the Matrix, they're one gender. But when they're not in the Matrix, they're the other gender because the Matrix is your, as it's described in the movie, your residual self-image. It's what you see Mm -hmm. yourself, your actual inner self realized as. Yeah. Um, And that's... The fact that there was a, they, they, in 1999, or I guess in 98 when they were writing the script, put a character like that who just very, like, very casually goes into this mirror, this alternate world, um, and their inner self is expressed the way that they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, to me, it's kind of tragic that they, they, they kept, they kept elements of that in the movie. They kept the name of the character. Um, yeah. And they cast somebody who I think is deliberately like androgynous. The character design is is made to be androgynous for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm a little bummed that they didn't yeah. fully commit to that. That but, is definitely you know, not faulting the Wachowskis for that. I'm really no. faulting like our culture and them having to be aware of like society's really not ready to accept that much of it yet. So we're just going to put in elements of it, mm. imply I'm it. Pretty- yeah. I'm pretty sure that was one of the stu- uh, studio note. I think they've talked about yeah. that of how they were told that they that it was just too weird that the people the execs didn't get it. They were saying like, "Why do you want to do this? Just keep it, you know, keep it one uh, gender." Um, but I think that would have been a great thing, and that I think that I've heard from a few people that that is a, an important part of their own self discovery in terms of uh, transness, but also in terms of like just. Gender nonconformity, like the idea of playing a video game and wanting to play a character who's not your your gender, you know, like playing, mm-hmm. I don't know, like Street Fighter and wanting to be Chun-Li when you're a boy or things like that has been, I've, I've heard a few people, I wonder if the Wachowskis have talked about it, I'm not sure, but I've definitely heard a few people talk about that experience um, and that being an important moment of recognition in certain ways. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I'm... I'm I'm glad that it's something that this movie sort of paved the way for pop culture to be able to talk about those things a little more openly. I mean, just by would like arguably in one way, just by giving the Wachowskis a career that could lead them to make things like Jupiter Ascending or or Mm -hmm. or Or Sense8. uh, Sense8. Sense8. Yeah. Um, which are very explicitly, uh, you know, trans allegories or allegories for being stuck in a body that you're, you don't feel like you belong in, um, mm-hmm. and talk and about so these things. So is the Matrix really in its own way, right? Well, yeah, it is. But I mean, like Sense8 goes as far as like showing queer culture unapologetically. And, well, of course, of course. Yeah. This is that. This is a one hundred percent allegory at a time when that was like completely, you know, under the radar. So yeah. you had you really had to interpret it. And yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, and it, you could say that in 1999, it's a scene that seed that was planted that, that made it easier. It, it gre- maybe greased the wheels a little bit for like people to be able to have conversations and eventually be more open and, and talk about these things more casually and openly um, so that yeah. they could have a place in, in pop culture where they belong. Yeah. I would be curious to talk to people who saw the trans allegory in 1999 because the mainstream right. event media and, and, and places didn't really think of it as that at all. But of course, people probably who were trans or queer were probably already seeing that in there. And I'd be curious to see when 
they started seeing it, if it was from the beginning or if it was later on, once the Wachowskis came out, that they like went back and realized, oh yeah, this all here, you know. When when did the what year uh, did the Wachowskis transition? Like them, they themselves. Um, I think Lana was the first to transition, and I know that by the time they did Cloud Atlas, which is in 2012, she was she had transitioned already. Okay. Um, I think it was sometime between Speed Racer, which was 2008, and Cloud Atlas that she transitioned. And Lily didn't transition until after that. I think when they were doing Sense8 is around okay. the time. So that's, uh, that's not that long ago. That's like, you know, five-ish years ago. And for Lana, maybe 10. So it's, you know, um, it's not that long ago. For, 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 you know, a considerable amount of time after the movie, the first movie came out, they were still, uh, they hadn't transitioned yet. Wrapping. Do you have any final? I have one final thought, which I which I had thought about, but it really came to me again this time around, which is realizing how much of this movie. There's so little plot to the movie. It really is just one big long exposition, and I think it's really. I think it's very effective at what it does, because there, there's no real no plan for the for the. There's like. There's no mission, you know, like in a movie, like a screenwriting 101 would tell you like, well, the people in the movie need a mission, but there's really no mission that Neo and Morpheus and Trinity are in. I mean, they are, they want to liberate the humans from the machines, but it's not like they're saying, okay, we got to go into this place and get this thing in order to to lead the machine city. It really just is a story of being woken up and the machines resisting that. And finally, Neo being able to be free. Right. Mm. So so it's an interesting structure in that way, I thought, watching it this time. Well, the villains have a clear goal, which is destroy Zion, break into Zion. Yeah. So the I guess the the journey of the main characters in the movie are is to protect Zion. It's to defend the to stop the bad guys from accomplishing their goal. Yeah, and that happens relatively late in the movie. So it really is just a movie about discovery, and I think that's maybe what makes it one that I don't revisit as often because it is kind of like the table setting and it is a lot of like explaining what the Mm. matrix is um, that I think is great. It's a great, uh, you know, it's a great uh, setting for the movie, but I really, what I really love about it is the world that it sets up. So I do, so it makes sense that I would prefer what comes after when they are really playing in that world. It's uh, it's kind of like the Purge series. The first Purge tells you what the whole concept is, but explains it to you through the lens of a home invasion film. And uh-huh. then pretty much that movie, the first Purge movie, um, sorry, The Purge, the original <laughs> one that came out, because um, there's a later sequel called The First Purge, prequel called The First Purge. Um, but the first movie with Ethan Hawke, it's it's just a home invasion movie, and it's very small. It's self contained, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, but it it promises the premise of this the whole. This is happening on every street and every city out there, and then the later movies show you that. Yeah, um, and that's yeah, that's kind of my experience of that franchise. Like, oh man, I like it wasn't until the second or third movie that I I saw what I wanted to see in yeah. this world that they had created for me. And I think that is really. The, I think it's what makes this movie great and also what made the sequels kind of very controversial and un, relatively unsuccessful when they came out is that this movie ends, it, it does that. It sets you up for such a great world and it really is a proof of concept to say like, hey, listen, we've come up with this idea. Isn't it amazing? Wouldn't you want to see like crazy shit happen in this world? 
And at the end, when Neo flies away and Rage Against the Machine is playing, everyone, you're like, yeah, like, you know, like you're so pumped to see what happens next that it's incredibly hard to live up to that. And the, especially since the Wachowskis were given green, a green, you know, blank check as another podcast, which is obviously lesser than this podcast would have said. Um, but to do whatever they wanted, they ended up doing something very personal and very tricky, which is maybe not what a lot of people wanted. But of course, we will talk about that more when we get to it. Yeah, totally. Do you have any, before we wrap up, do you have any criticism or, well, that's setting, that's kind of setting it up. Um, <laughs> Conrado, how, what are yeah. your feelings on the machine's solution to using humans as a battery? Uh, it, Morpheus says when he's describing it that they yeah. discovered that we have we put out more bioelectricity than a 120 volt battery and more than 25,000 BTUs of body heat. Mm-hmm. I haven't sat down and done the math. Um, but I've heard a lot of people say, people smarter than me say, uh, that this is not an efficient system, that the human body doesn't, the output that we, of electricity that we put out is no, um, nowhere near the amount that we in, that we intake or that we mm-hmm, require mm-hmm. to That function. we need much more fuel than we put out energy. That makes yeah. sense. Um, do you think this is the best plan that the machines could have come up with? Or I mean, I think given the circumstances, when they, they used to run on solar power, they say, right? And the humans scorched the sky, so there's no oh, solar power that. left. Mm. So they are like, they're pretty much put in a bind of like, what can we use for fuel? And the machines seem to be very conscious about renewable energy. So I think they're going with, they don't want to go for oil. Or maybe in this future, we're out of oil, right? Like if everything was running solar, it's probably because either you know, we took a stance on global warming or we just were at the point where there was no oil left and nothing else to do but solar power. Um, So probably there's nothing left to do now than humans for electricity. But that brings an interesting question about once the humans wake up, what do they use to generate power? Which I think is an interesting thought. Mm. Well, the, so the animatrix sort of answers that, which is that. Oh, great. Because it also, like, explains where they got their hovercrafts and all of that thing, like the Nebuchadnezzar ship, mm-hmm. um, which is they, that those were th- those were built by the AI. So this is something in the Animatrix um, in the, re- the the second Renaissance part one or the second Renaissance part two. Um, we built machines to do all of our work. We built these robots to do everything for us. Eventually, one of them went haywire and murdered a person. We put them on trial. We had them destroyed. Uh, the, but at that point though, we were technology, we were really technologically advanced already and had a lot of this, the technology that you see. Um, but the, the machines were exiled to a a city that they built for themselves called one zero or IO. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and IO as a nation started developing solar panels and AI technology and hover, hover vehicles and um, sharing them with with the rest of the world, mm-hmm. like so, there was a period of of sort of tentative peace where right. the robots were just creating products that like technology and products that improved human life for a while until the humans um, decided to attack. Decided to attack, or as Mor- what Morpheus says, and this is one of those lines where I didn't even write it down because I was like, I know for sure I'll remember to talk about this, and I can't, <laughs> I can't believe. I forgot you almost to talk didn't. About it. <laughs> the line when he says, "We don't know who struck first, us or them, but right. we know that it was us that scorched the sky." 
Right. Um, and it's like what you described. It's because we figured out that their their power source is solar power. Um, but yeah, it's 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 uh, that's always stuck with me. The fact that we're the ones, we're the reason that the sky looks the way that it does. Like the 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 apocalyptic yeah. wasteland that Morpheus shows him. Like that was our doing, our technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very important thing going into the other movies as well. The idea that, you know, as it goes on, uh, the Wachowskis are really interested in, I think, subverting any kind of uh, binary or like duality or like, you know, this or that. And I think the, the relationship between humans and machines gets more complicated as it goes along in interesting yeah. ways that we'll see. That's uh, Switch is probably my favorite character in this movie. But my favorite character in the entire saga is Sebebe. And I cannot wait until we get to <laughs> Matrix 4 so we could talk about about all Sebebe. about Sebebe. That's going to be the Sebebe podcast. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Can't wait. <laughs> uh, but before we get to that, Conrado, uh-huh. yeah. we've got to move on to our uh, bonus questions that I ask every guest oh, on the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. You've, an- you've answered these before, um, but let's see if you've updated your answers at all. Yeah. Uh, first of all, Conrado, what's your snack? Did you have any uh, special Matrix snack? Did you eat porridge or cream of wheat or maybe um, taste, tasty wheat <laughs> while you were wheat. eating while you were watching the Matrix? Um, or did you just eat anything I, because anything could taste like chicken? I <laughs> that's a great scene too. Um, no, I didn't. No, I did eat something. I just came back from a holiday from spending Christmas and New Year's in South America when we're recording this in Peru, which is where I'm from. And they brought with me some Peruvian snacks. So um, if you're ever in the lookout, maybe you're in a grocery store that or a bodega that has some Peruvian uh, items in them, I'm going to recommend to you two great Peruvian snacks, which are um, kind of like cookie-based. Number one, if you find anything that says flavored lucuma, which is spelled L-U-C-U-M-A, that is a very... A specific South American fruit that we have a lot of things that are flavored like that, but it doesn't grow in a lot of other places. So it's very uncommon, but it's super common in Peru. Like Lucuma ice cream is like, to me and to people in Peru, it's like one of the basic ice cream flavors, you know, so that when you, when I came to America and I realized, oh, of course they don't have it. But to me, it's like it's chocolate or strawberry. It's like, it's everywhere. Um, but anyway, if you find this, it's a, it's a, I gave it to our friend who had never tried it before, and she described it as, I, because I wanted to see her, what do you think this flavor is, not knowing, she didn't know that it was something she had never tasted before. And she said it's kind of like a mix of, uh, kind of like a sweet, butternut, squashy, kind of like, kind of flavor. So it's it's kind mm. of, uh, it's a very creamy, sweet fruit um, it's kind of like it, it's kind of like a mix of an avocado and a butternut squash because it's kind of like soft like an avocado, but it's really uh, tasty in that way. So I recommend you try that. And the other thing that we have, which I love, it's um, the ones we have are called choco soda, but maybe they're called something else somewhere else, which is like basically uh, saltine type crackers that are dipped in chocolate. So it's like kind of like that mix of like, you know, a little bit savory, a little bit sweet. And I love them. So those are those were basically what I ate while watching The Matrix. That sounds awesome. I'm very jealous. <laughs> um, my snack was something I recently discovered, which is they're very very dangerous. Um, it was also ice cream, though. Incidentally, it was uh, the I, I discovered the grocery store across the street from my apartment sells um, 
Nightingale ice cream bars. Have you had any? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, they're ice cream I, sandwiches. Yes, yes, I had them. I they're very good. They're like they're oh like gosh. individually wrapped, right? They're individually wrapped. They're like four dollars. Which every time I was yeah. uh, in the grocery store looking at them, I'm like, who's gonna pay four dollars for an ice cream sandwich? And then one day I got <laughs> I got curious enough to be like, if it's four dollars, it's gotta be good. It's gotta be like four dollars. I would pay $8 for one of these things. Now that I've tried one, <laughs> they're that good. <laughs> the one that I tried, it was miso churro. Um, oh, Cinnamon brown sugar cookie is like the sandwich pieces, is uh-huh. like cinnamon brown sugar cookies. Uh, the ice cream is white miso ice cream with churro pieces like chopped up inside of it. Um, it might have wow. been the best ice cream sandwich I've ever had. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. So Nightingale, uh, get, at me, get at me if you want to be a sponsor of this show. Yeah, um, I've had I've I haven't had that flavor, but I've had some of those uh, bars, and they're really great. Yeah, they're they're way better than you think they're going to be, and I, I mean honestly, four dollars is a little bit much, but yeah, but you know, it, do it, it once, it's worth do it, it once in a lifetime. Yeah, you gotta try them, try them, and yeah. you'll see for yourself. Decide whether or not four dollars is worth it. Uh, all right, Conrado, yeah. if we were to recast any two characters in the Matrix. With Danny DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg, who are we? Re- who would you recast, and how would it improve the Matrix? So, I am very glad that you brought this up before because I think the obvious answer is you do Danny DeVito as Switch outside of the Matrix, and inside the Matrix, it's Whoopi Goldberg. Oh my God, you're brilliant! That's genius. I think that's the best way to do it, right? To bring to to address your big point, which I think is totally valid, that that would have made the movie better, even better than it is. And you bring in Dan DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg, and of course you cast the actor who played Switch, who was really good in a different role. Um, so, Conrado, the matri- in the Matrix, your avatar is your idealized self. So, yeah. which 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 one is which one is the avatar, and which one is? the copper top uh in the in the ship with yeah. the jack in there back their head. I was thinking that Whoopi was the avatar, but that might be might bring its own problematic elements. I don't know. People say like Dan DeVito imagining himself as a black woman. Um is mm-hmm. that like problematic or is the other way around more problematic? I don't know. Right. But you know <laughs> uh if it was nineteen ninety nine maybe we'd be more okay with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think the, <laughs> I think the joke answer would be like the idealized self being Danny DeVito. Right. Um, but Whoopical. yeah. <laughs> Thinks of herself as Danny DeVito. Why not? She's like, oh man, if, I o- love if, Danny only DeVito. I could, if only I wasn't limited by this body, if only I was a four foot tall, hairy, yeah. <laughs> Italian <laughs> guy, penguin guy. Oh, right, so God. so I think outside the Matrix, it's Whoopi Goldberg. Inside the Matrix, it's Danny DeVito as the Penguin. <laughs> God, that's so good. <laughs> um, my answer is probably a little obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. Whoopi Goldberg is Morpheus. She just she just has oh, like sure. you know gravitas and authoritarian authority. Um, she would be good as Morpheus. Yeah. Uh, and then DeVito as um, Agent Smith, for sure. Oh, uh, okay. Or what might also they, work yeah, is if he's ahead. like agent number two or agent number three. So like you got uh, these two uh, yeah. agents that look almost identical and then one and then that is DeVito. like <laughs> half their height. <laughs> yeah, that's a good call. That's a good call. I also think DeVito would be good as the Oracle. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, 
Because, like, with the agents, do you think that the agents were designed to look similar? Or are they, is the idea that, like, they're supposed to look like exactly the same person, but in 1999, they, all they could do was just cast three people that looked very similar? Um, no, I think that's, well, I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. But in an ideal world, they might have done everyone looking the same. But I think it plays in their favor that they're similar looking, but not exactly the same, because it becomes important to differentiate Smith from the other agents. And I think like, even in this movie, it's important to, for him to look different. Do you think the, do you think it was the machine's intent um, to just oh. sort of make one template for an agent, copy and paste it? Um, or did it deliberately make them look like slightly different people? Um, so Definitely that, deliberate, I think, because yeah. the, I think people, the people within the Matrix would have noticed that all the agents look the same. I think that's not that's something that they wouldn't have accepted. Mm. So I think in the, maybe in an earlier version of the Matrix, the agents looked all the same and then people were kind of like c- catching up to it. So they made it so that they're very similar but, you know, there's like a variation in different kind of eyes and noses that they can have so that people accept them as different people. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about like when when they're interrogating Morpheus and that moment when uh, Smith tells the other two to leave the room and they mm. sort of look at each other like agents number two and three. Yeah. Just exchange a look. And then without a word, they just get up and leave the room. And I was thinking about like in that moment. Uh huh. What they must have, because they're computer programs, like you have to think of them in those terms, um, what must have been going through their minds was like they were probably going through all of their processes and protocols and couldn't find a reason to say no to this request, even though it's out of the ordinary. Right. So because, because they couldn't find a reason to say no, they complied with the request. But I think that if there was anything in their programming that was like, this is this might be a sign that this program is running rampant or, you know, this might be mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, an, an, an errant protocol or something. It would have they would have spoken up. I don't think that Smith just inherently has authority over the other two. I think they all just they do things because like it's the it's the next most efficient thing to do. Yeah. Um, and our algorithm tells us that. Yeah, that's an interesting... Yeah, because I think you're right that Smith is not higher up in the ladder necessarily, but I think he thinks he's higher up in the ladder and he is definitely more effective and takes charge. So I think that's also maybe part of why he wants to move on to something else because he's kind of stuck in that position. Because there's that moment where they come back in the room and he's got his sunglasses off and his face is like right up in Morpheus's and they're like what were you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he do, he doesn't get to answer the question. And cause you know, that's when the alarms go off that the, mm-hmm. the, all the guards in the lobby are getting shot. Um, but my God, I would have loved to hear his answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, awesome. Well, uh, Conrado, do you have anything more to say about the matrix before we wrap up? Um, not really. I think I said more, most of what I had to say. I think it's a very good movie, a great movie, even if I think what's to come is even better. So I'm excited that we're going to be talking about all the Matrix movies. Me too. Um, and uh, Conrado, you may or may not have the record for most appearances on the show talking about movies, but you definitely... Uh, hold the record for longest podcasts. And this one, um, this one wasn't probably our longest so far, but it's, uh, 
pretty good length, and so <laughs> wait, our longest has to be the A one A A I episode, AI right? for sure. That one was like about two and a half hours. This one's getting close to that, so I think it's time for us to, it's time to, to wrap, wrap up. up. Okay, um, but we are going to be back to talk about the Matrix Reloaded um, in a, in a week. And uh, we don't have a guest lined up, but we are going to have we're going to try to have a guest for each of the episodes. We'll um, see if we can make that happen. It would be great. So we're going to try our best. Yeah. Uh, so listeners, you know where to find us on all the social media. The links are going to be in the show notes. Um, you can also find Conrado's podcasts on all of your podcast app, which uh, want to ask him to tell you about um, yeah. uh, the Criterion Project as well as. Uh, for invader yeah that's right so i have two podcasts the criterion project i do with film critic rachel wagner and we look at movies in the criterion uh collection and it's um, a lot of fun uh lou has been a guest on that podcast and he's also been a guest on my other podcast for an invader which is on semi hiatus but it is i am planning to bring it back by the time this episode comes out i may or may not have brought it back but every now and then i do uh post to uh, update episodes but a second season of foreign invader i am planning on it to just talk with people that i love and admire about movies and other pop culture elements things that i love and admire so that should be uh, coming out soon and please check that out yeah check those out you can click the link in the show notes and uh, don't forget to send all of your hate mail to robosvdinos at gmail.com or you can hit us up in the comments on twitter uh facebook or well i'm sorry twitter meta i guess or um, <laughs> uh <laughs> instagram and you we'll go. see you next week thanks for listening hey the matrix has you All right, Rage Against the Machine, play.